The verses we're about to read from John 17 are part of what are, are, are referred to or known as, are we working guys? <laughs> are part of what are known as uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. The gospel speak of, of Jesus frequently going away uh, to uh, desolate places to pray. Yet the gospels rarely tell us what he prayed or how he prayed John 17, this entire chapter, is a transcript of the longest recorded prayer that we have from Jesus. I mean, in this passage, we we truly get a a picture and understanding of how how Christ and his relationship with the Father is known. Let me just call a quick timeout. So, is this working okay? It's a lot of ring, all right. And if you see, as we're reading through in 17, in verse 20, uh, Jesus, as he's praying as a priest, he, he prays for us in verses 20 and following. Um, he's going to be delivered unto death in just a few hours. What is on his mind and his heart? Those things are clearly spelled out for us in this prayer. And I think you're going to also see how this passage is kind of like the perfect passage for uh, what we are dealing with in our country right now. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all the people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. O Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you, get, you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None was lost except for the one doomed to destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world." My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For, for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And my prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me to be where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Let's pray. Yeah, our Father, thank you so much for these words that Jesus has prayed for us. Teach us by them. Open our hearts to receive them, our ears to hear them. Uh, you know, lead and guide and instruct us with these words um, that we might be agents of your gospel in this world. And we pray it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, hopefully um, our audio issues are <laughs> largely, we're good to go. I got the thumbs up over there. Let me um, share with you a word that you're probably not familiar with before, um, kind of jargony-ish word. It is perichoresis. Uh, perichoresis. Perichoresis in theological lingo is the term that's used to describe the interrelations of the persons of the Trinity. And fitting that we talk about it on Trinity Sunday. Perichoresis is a Greek word. It means to penetrate or to like, be penetrated and contain. And it destri- describes the three persons of the Trinity as interpenetrating one another or permeating one another or mutually dwelling within one another. If you've, uh, to illustrate this, if you've ever been to a Greek wedding before, you know they have... Um, a lot of dances at Greek weddings. There's a particular kind of dance that they used to call uh, perichoresis. And in it, you have not two dancers, but at least three dancers. They begin by going in circles, weaving in and out in a, in a very beautiful pattern of motion, very intricate. Um, and as the dance progresses, the movements become faster and faster. All the while, they stay in perfect sync and in perfect rhythm. Eventually, the, this this um, circling and, and movement, they are moving so quickly that it all becomes one blur. And the early church fathers, they observed this dance. When they, they saw this dance of perichoresis, they said, that's what the Trinity is like. That that dance illustrates what we read here in verse 21. One of the most important verses in all the Bible to tell us about this, the interrelations between the person and the Trinity. You are in me. And I am in you. And so, here's what we can say. Each person of the Trinity is indwelt by each of the others. Each person of the Trinity uh, permeates one another. They pour themselves into the others so that they contain one another and are contained by each other. Yet they never lose their personal differences. As the front of the bulletin says, you know, the father never becomes the son, no matter how much he is indwelt by the son. Um, And the son never becomes the father, no matter how much he is indwelt by or indwells the father. They they retain their, you know, individual identities. 
And so I, I know already probably what you're thinking. Like, the Trinity is already mysteriously confusing. <laughs> Why add an additional layer of confusion and, and complexity, the doctrine of perichoresis, to something that's already, like, hard for us to grasp? And the reason we, we do this is because Jesus makes the connection between divine perichoresis and us. He takes this vastly complicated theological idea and he boils it down into the church's relationship with the Father and the Son and particularly the unity of the church and her mission to the world. I think it's so cool. Um, Here's what, if you read John very carefully, you discover these things. John 17, that is. You discover these things. One, that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. Two, that this sort of unity, that this is the sort of unity that the Father and the Son have. Three, that the church is also in, in us, he says. We are, they are in us. That is, in the Son, who is in the Father. And therefore, four, that means the church is participating in this perichoritic dance. Which, the, I mean, that's a, an analogy for basically the triune life. The church is participating in this triune life of love and of glory. And five, and unity It makes the church one in unity, just as the Father and Son are one in unity. And six, I should have come up with seven because, you know, seven is a divine number. But six, the result of this is that the world would see and believe that Jesus Christ really has come from the Father. And that the world would experience eternal life, which is to know you, the one true God. To me, you know, maybe I'm just a theological wonk, but I think that is so cool that that is in this passage. Um, and I recognize it's mysterious and possibly a bit confusing. Um, I guess I could go through those six again, but based on the looks on your faces, you're like, no, don't do that. But it, it really is, it all boils down to verse 23. It says, I and them and you and me. Um, if I could put it this way, if, if, this is, if this is the paracritic life of the Trinity and we are in the Son and the Father is in the Son, and the Spirit is in the Son, that means, what does it mean by implication? That means that we, we are all doing this. And what does that mean by implication? It means that our lives, that our lives with each other ought to obviously be reflecting this. It means that we ought to be mutually indwelling each other's lives, as is reflected in the perichoritic dance. We should be in each other, in each other. That's really it. We should be in each other, in each other's homes, in each other's conversations, in each other's prayers. Uh, If we are in this, then that means we are mutually interpenetrating each other's schedules and each other's troubles. And we're pouring ourselves into each other's um, everythings. Why? Because it is the unavoidable reality, the unavoidable reality, if you are Living in the dance. As I said, I think, like, drop the mic. That is really cool. (laughs) Uh, And even more so, the fact that this is what was on Jesus' heart, like, hours before he died. This is what Jesus was praying for us. Uh, His prayer in John 17, the high priestly prayer, suggests that the church's life is to be an image of the triune life insofar as we are in one another Just as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, we are in one another, full of life and love and of unity. 
Um, and that, 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 that's absolutely what we should be praying for, for the church, and, and aspiring for um, when we, when we uh, think about the church. I admit that my aspirations for the church are just way less than that. I really don't expect that. Uh, I don't enter into church life, I mean, really expecting that, uh, I mean, to my own shame. And I think anyone who's been a conscientious member of a church for a few years knows that, that they've rarely experienced the church in that way. The church can, can be uh, a not-so-pleasant experience. It can be wretchingly uh, painful, and we recoil, we don't, we recoil at the idea of, of this level of, of, of pouring out and, and, and containing and indwelling each other's lives. I mean, do I really want to be part of that, we ask. Peter Lightheart, a theologian um, whom I'm drawing from pretty heavily in the sermon today, he puts it really quite eloquent, eloquently. And if you remember, we had Peter come in a few years ago, and if memory serves me correct, he might have even preached on John 17, but he said, he says this, the church is to be a people that embodies this mutual indwelling. Each person is a potential dwelling place, a a potential home for the other. Now, sadly, uh, many lives, even Christian lives, are are in fact like spiritual messes, um, slums, if you will, because of sin, uh, they, Christian lives are, are full of anger and violence and bitter brokenness, as littered with trash and broken bottles and needles and hopes as some of the darkest of America's inner cities. And the Lord knows, we don't want to live there, do we? We sure don't want them to move in with us. No, not them. Um, and yet, refusing the, to do this, to be a mutually indwelling place for the other, that's not a Christian option. It's not. The eternal Son of God made his dwelling among us and in us, making all of our misery and our sorrows and, and wickedness his own. Therefore, in imitation of him, we are to indwell one another. We're also uh, sadly aware of the fact that if you look at church history, the, the sort of paracritic unity that Jesus prays for is largely lacking. I mean, we, all, we know the church has been fractured into three major branch, branches. You've got the uh, Orthodox or the Eastern branch. You have the Roman Catholic branch. You have the Protestant branch. And within Protestantism, you have you know, a myriad of different, uh, innumerable number of denominations. You look at church history, you look at the church today, we don't see much of a perichoritic dance among the three branches of the church now, do we? And what is more... And this is especially relevant. We don't see so much perichoritic unity um, between black and white Christians. I mean, are we, are we, are we really, are, are we really places of mutual indwelling, homes for each other between black and white Christians? Do we really do that? Do we see that very often? No, we don't. We, not at all. Which you know, should lead us to to greatly lament. The day will come when when this is finally realized. We know that because Jesus prayed for it. And there's nothing that Jesus asked for the Father. None of Jesus' requests for the Father are ever going to be fully denied. No, I mean, 
The Father will definitely grant this to the Son. And we long for that day to happen. And in fact, the Father has already granted part of this request. Um, and we'll talk about this more in a minute. But we are already united by one Spirit in Christ. We already have this of a sort. And yet, there's still a whole lot. You know, you always talk about the, the already, but the not yet. There's still a whole lot of not yet left to come. And that is why we need to take John 17 and pray it regularly. I mean, I even thought, I wonder, I wonder if every member of our church, simply every day of this next week, prayed John 17. That was it. That was their devotional time. Like what effect that might even have on us. This week I was listening to another PCA pastor. He has a black friend, a, a Christian a black friend, police officer in Oklahoma City. And they were having a conversation, and this black police officer, about seven or so years ago, he, just, he decided he would start asking people to grade race relations in the city, uh, in Oklahoma City, and just see what they thought. And he said, well, he, you know, whenever you would ask a black person, or I mean a white person, that question, how are, give, a, give me a grade on race relations. He said pretty much every white person graded it an A, right? And then you go to black people and ask them to grade it, and what do you think they gave? Virtually every black person he um, asked would give race relations a D or an F, except his 90-year-old grandmother who gave race, race relations an A. And he's like, Grandma? Why are you, what are you, why are you giving, giving it an A? And she said, well, well, you know, son, if you'd been around here in the 1960s, you would see how much better things are uh, today than they were then. Now, I, I use that as an, I bring that up not to evaluate the claims of A, B, C, D, or E. I just think it's interesting. Isn't it interesting the discrepancy that exists in perspective on how things are going? And surely the, the events of this last week, the last two weeks, have um, maybe made us, like me, a, a white Christian, reassess the grade that I would have given. Um, I, and I bet if you, if you were to talk to black brothers and sisters in Christ, like black Christian brothers and sisters in Christ, in our denomination, you know, brothers and sisters who share all, nearly like all of our same theological convictions. We're, we're working off of the same playbook. You know, we have the same worldview. And you were to ask them um, their perspective on things. I, I just suspect that you would hear a very different perspective from them than, um, the, than the way that you see things. And I think that'd be actually a very good exercise to do is is to ask and, and to look through their eyes. It really shouldn't surprise us that racism is uh, alive and uh, active in America. Um, that shouldn't surprise us at all. It should cause us to, to lament. It, it, but, uh, I mean, here's the fact of the matter. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, all of us, all of us, all of us, all of us, we are fallen in our humanity um, whatever our racial differences, the one like, central characteristic that we all have is Titus 3.3. 3. You know what Titus says? He says, the one central characteristic, we are all foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and lusts. 
We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That is mankind's central characteristic. That is the human race in Adam. That is a very important verse to consider right now. Living in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And that, friends, is why the gospel always begins with the word repent. Repent. Repent of your sins. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. Uh, we must repent. Repent of all malice and envy, hatred, bitterness, enmity, tribalism. We must repent of all those things that the Spirit convicts us of. And here's the thing. If you cannot see the image of God in your black brother or sister, it's because you are blind. It's not because it's not there. And if you cannot see the image of God in, in your white brother or sister, it's because you're blind. It's not because it's not there. And it's something that we need to repent of. It's also very important to remember, what was the first, what was the, the first great crisis that existed in the early church? It all had to do with uh, race relations. Race relations between Jew and Gentile. You know, Paul preached that the gospel was the power of God to break down the division between Jew and Gentile, between those races. It was the power of the gospel that reconciled Jew and Gentile in the first century from an, a seemingly you know, irreconcilable position. I mean, it, it, would, it took a miracle to reconcile them, but it was reconciled how? By the blood of Jesus Christ, which was applied then uh, and that created a new humanity. Because that's Paul's picture of the church. A new humanity uh, has been born in the church uh, through the blood of Jesus Christ. We must make no mistake about it. The world's way of reconciling us is not God's way of reconciliation. I mean, the world's way of reconciling is more bitterness, more hatred. It is silencing viewpoints. It's shaming people into conformity. It's a, it's a form of coercion. The Lord, the, the world's way will never be able to provide the solution to this problem because Jesus has told us what that solution is in John 17. The solution is, of all things, perichoresis. The solution is white, black, Asian, and Hispanic all sharing the perichoretic, perichoretic triune life together, which is only made possible by being washed in the one blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. Not the blood of societal scapegoats, the blood of Jesus Christ. Not that this would ever happen, but if God gave me a microphone that could broadcast to all of the Christians in the world. I just want to speak to the Christians. I, I don't know that I would have anything to say to everybody else. But if, if he said, like, here, Brad, here's your one shot. You get to just talk to all the Christians out there. Here's the mic. I would say this. I would say, Christ is all, and in all, and through all. Therefore, all of our former rivalries and hatred cannot remain in Christ. Whether Greek or Jew, slave or free, rich or poor, we all partake of the same spirit, Paul says. We, Jesus says we are all invited into this I and you, you and me life. All of us in Christ entered the dance of reconciling love. And that means, that means that we must put on tender mercies. 
tender mercies towards each other, the kind that extend a full and complete and free and final forgiveness, the kind that puts away all the hostilities, and and the kind that truly works for our neighbor's good. And surprisingly, you know, God hasn't given me that microphone yet. (laughs) But if he did, if he did, don't you see this is the perfect passage to speak about it from? It really is. Just as the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, we too are to live within the Father and the Son in that unity, which can only mean that our lives must be fully united, no matter our racial background. And in in case we miss this point, Jesus says the result of this, if you live in the reality of this perichoritic life, the result of this is that the world will see this human community united across all traditional barriers of race, custom, and class and realize this can only come from God. <laughs> like this, new, this thing can only come from the work of God. And that's why he says in verse 23, if you want to look there, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and you have loved them even as you've loved me. Dr. Rayburn uh, in Tacoma had some interesting reflections on the unity of the church. And in these quotes I'm going to give you, he was talking about theological unity. Normally when John 17 gets preached, it's about our, our theological divisions, you know, Protestant, um, Roman Catholic, Orthodox. But he writes, I think it's applicable to really all of our divisions. He writes, he writes that I grew up, this is him speaking, I grew up in a spiritual culture in which the obligation to contend for the purity of the faith was considered a much more, much more important value than the obligation to maintain the unity of the church. Doctrinal purity was considered a virtue far superior to that of Christian unity. Indeed, schism, schism was a sin so far down the list of transgressions, something like driving 60 in a 55 mile an hour speed zone, that we, we really didn't imagine, we really couldn't imagine that we were openly defying God's word, which of course we were. We were in our sectarianism, in our divisiveness, and in our too ready criticism of other believers for not thinking about things the way that we did. Uh, And the result in our circles and in all circles like them was too often this proud, censorious, and schismatic spirit. And he says, I can talk about that because that is my past. That is my tradition. That is my church. Dr. Francis Schaeffer used to say the, the great sin of the conservative Presbyterians when they left the Presbyterian Church in the USA in 1936, the great sin was that they, wasn't that they left, they were actually kind of kicked out. They were kicked. The great sin was that they didn't leave with tears in their eyes. They didn't leave weeping. Um, he did not doubt that separation was necessary because our unity has to be a unity in the Trinity. It has to be a unity in the person of Christ. I mean, the church, that church in 1936 was denying that you know, Jesus was born of a virgin and, and was maybe even God. Um, but indeed, uh, the faithful who led the protest, I'm sorry, sorry, I got lost. But uh, Dr. Schaefer said, we didn't cry about it. We didn't lament and what I would say is that that's probably true of us. Like we don't lament enough the present state of the body of Christ. 
that we've grown complacent in and just accepting of there'll be a black church over there, there'll be a white church over there, there'll be a Hispanic church over there. We'll never really interact with each other. Um, There'll be uh, a Republican church over there, there'll be a Democrat church over there. Um, And we just don't, we don't lament, like truly weep over the state of things. I mean, Christian unity is so important because perhaps more than any other issue out there, it provides credibility to our message. And if there ever was a time for the church to come together, you know, black and brown and white and all of it, to come together under the blood of Christ without hatred, bitterness, and enmity, right now, if we could somehow do that, it would paint such a contrast to the way the world is doing these things. What really stood out to me um, watching too much of the news uh, over the past couple weeks, reading too many articles, is is how the unity of the world, the the supposed unity of the world, is in fact a a coerced unity. It's a a unity of say our message or else there will be recriminations. If you disagree with us, you're not permitted to say so or there will be recriminations. Um, Disagree and you'll be shamed, you'll be shunned, you'll, you'll lose your job, you'll be shouted down, uh, you, you'll lose your re- reputation. It's, it, it's a false unity. Um, and in the past, unfortunately, the church has made the same mistake. Because we have, through coercion, tried to establish you know, uh, a, a unity. And, and, and that, friends, that is the world's playbook. Whenever the church has used the world's playbook, oh man, it doesn't go well for us. What Jesus says is this, I have taken you out of the world so that you are no longer of the world in order that I would send you back into the world in order to change the world. If I've taken you out of the world, you can't play by the world's standards anymore. You can't you know, use their playbooks. I am, but I am sending you back into the world to change the world. To conclude the sermon, I just want to go back to the very uh, beginning of the passage. If you'll look with me at verse 1, it's kind of innocuous. We, you read over it so quickly, especially when there's, what, 26 verses that you're about to read. But after Jesus said this, he looked up toward heaven and prayed. He looks up. You know, prayer, prayer is how we look up to the kingdom of God. Prayer is how we invite the hope, the help, and the healing of the kingdom of God to come down here on earth. While we remain on earth, we need to look up to heaven as Jesus did, right? When we look up and we pray, we are inviting God to make this colossally broken, rebellious world more like the kingdom of God. Uh, Your name be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's looking up. When we look up and pray, we remind ourselves that whatever we are praying for, um, that that will be answered in full on the final day. This world is coming to an end and it will be replaced by a perfect eternal kingdom of God. When we look up and pray, we remind ourselves that this world is not our ultimate home. That the kingdom is our ultimate home. And, you know, American is not my ultimate citizenship. 
And Canadians, not his ultimate citizenship, not if he's, if he's in Christ. I mean, it, when, you bec- when, you are, it, when you become a Christian, you're no longer from Kansas anymore, <laughs> so to speak. You know, our citizenship is ultimately in the kingdom of heaven. And our home is ultimately in the kingdom of heaven. And when we look up, we reorient ourselves to that fact. By looking up to heaven in prayer, the Holy Spirit sends us the help to choose holiness, wisdom, obedience, forgiveness, love, truth, humility. In doing so, we are pulling heaven down to earth into our lives. Prayer is where we look up and we pull heaven down rather than look at hell and and try to raise it up. And so it is, friends, to that end, we we hope and pray. Um, We seriously hope and pray for Christian reconciliation, um, for worldwide Christian unity, for peace, the peace of the kingdom to come to this world. To pray in this way, to pray John 17, is to come alongside Jesus Christ, the high priest, and to join in his request. We can hope for that day to dawn, and we can do our part for bringing that day to pass, not only by praying, but by participating in the perichoritic life that we've been been invited into, by, by loving one another, indwelling one another in this body, and having a charitable regard for those outside of it. Amen.